Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about the virtues of love and morality. My first guest is Dr. Stephen G. Post, who is the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University Renaissance School of Medicine, where he also serves as professor of family, population, and preventative medicine. Stephen has also taught at the University of Chicago Medical School, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He is an elected member of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Board of Alzheimer's Disease International, as well as a lifelong member of the Templeton Foundation. Dr. Stephen G. Post is widely respected as an opinion leader, speaker, and best-selling author. And appropriately, we're talking about one of his newest books that's about to come out, Give and Live Better, Eight Pathways to the Positive Achievement of Goodness. Stephen, as always, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show, especially today, focusing on the juicy topic of love. <laughs> well, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Lisa. I enjoy our conversation immensely. Me too. I want to share with you a quick anecdote before you and I got on the call today I was on my Peloton doing my ride and following one of the teachers I really enjoy, who is a, a dancer, and she talks about her experience of ecstasy when she's on the dance floor. And she beautifully translates this to a, a riding experience. And she talked about this love of humanity, love of the world, when she is in this ecstatic free state of flow. And I thought, I got I to gotta share this with Stephen, because I think this is what we're talking about. Well, flow is incredibly powerful because it gets us beyond chronological time. We're not obsessed about what's coming up in five minutes or what happened 10 minutes ago. And we're just there in the moment. And we're able to get free of a lot of anxiety, a lot of interference and we can get in touch with that aspect of our being, which uh, is beyond doing. It's not the doing, it's the being. And, yeah. and, and that's how, how you felt, it sounds like. And this state of uh, pure, compassionate love for the other person who we don't necessarily even know or need to know. And I think that's the brilliance of this kind of love that I'm interested in exploring. <laughs> Yeah, well, sure. And, and you know, this uh, is incredibly powerful in people's lives. Um, you know, I have a definition which I picked up from a psychiatrist at the University of Chicago by the name of Harry Stack Sullivan, who was quite renowned. And he said, 
when the happiness and security of another is as real or meaningful to us as our own, and sometimes more so, we love that person. And that kind of a definition, you know, if you're just looking at a homeless person uh, along the sidewalk, you can feel that toward them. If you're Mother Teresa, you can feel it toward uh, people who are hungry in Calcutta. If you're um, uh, Cicely Saunders, you feel it toward people who are dying and you begin the hospice movement. But you can also feel it toward an old friend who's had a hard time and needs a good listening ear. You can feel it toward someone who's made a big medical mistake and they want you to try to help them to go on with their career and be self-forgiving. Uh, so I, I was recently told someone, those who make no mistakes make nothing. You feel it toward <laughs> a child in a crib. It's, it's, it's a definition that doesn't draw on a lot of fancy ancient languages, but it's just everyday common sense. And as a, as a doctor, as a physician, you know, the ability to bestow or share that love with patients or our coworkers or even people that we seemingly clash with, I think there's something there. It's, ha- it's hard to get there, obviously, with people that we, we clash with. But being able to be of that mindset, this generous, spirited mindset well, the so-called difficult patient, you know, it's usually because the system is so difficult and they've been knocked around. They haven't been treated well. They've yeah. been referred here and there. They, I think difficult patients are the patients that we really want to be challenged by to be more compassionate. I mean, in the medical context, we emphasize compassionate care, but compassion is simply an expression of love in action. And, and we, the, the, the notion of medical love is not quite in vogue right now, although you'd be surprised. Uh, but it's, it's not a possessive love, and, and it's a love that has the, the glance of kindness uh, consistently uh, and, and doesn't get caught up in, in, in anything else. But you can train, you can teach people that, and you can teach it through mindfulness techniques and interactions, and and we do a lot of that. That's what we do. Let's talk a little bit about the Unlimited Love Institute, which you founded in 2001. It's been around for a long time because love never goes out of style. (laughs) And I would love for you to share about the Institute, your inspiration, and how love works for you in your life. Well, okay. <laughs> Those are big questions. Huh? Well, we got, uh, we got some time. <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, I've always been interested in the topic of love since I was a teenager. And it really comes down to synchronicity about those uncanny moments when we just feel that we're a lot more cherished in this universe than we are necessarily aware of. You know, it's the perfect person at the perfect time who just seems to be there in answer to a prayer. And it's just too uncanny. It just feels set up by a loving presence underlying all of reality. Uh, and, and so we begin to feel um, love in the universe. And I, I've had those feelings most of, my, most of my life. You know, they come and go a little bit, as they do for everybody. But uh, the whole point of spiritual technique and meditation and so forth is to try to 
stay in that space. Let's talk a little bit about spiritual technique, because some people will say, you know, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in religion. And yet in, in conversation with them, they talk about the world in such a way where there it's it's another word. You know, they're there, but they're using a, a different terminology or a different description of what it means for them to be in within that realm. Yeah, it's really an important distinction. My my good colleague and vice president of the institute, uh, Matthew T. Lee, he's the head of empirical research on human flourishing at Harvard now. Uh, uh, Matt and I wrote a book uh, called The Heart of Religion, and it was based on a survey done uh, professionally with upwards of 1,200 adult Americans, and we asked them, have you experienced God's love? And believe it or not, Lisa, 80% of people said they had, at least once. Now, 40% of people said they'd experienced it more than once. And there were, you know, 20% of people who said they'd experienced it many times, 10% who had experienced it almost regularly and even constantly. So um, people may not be uh, formally associated with a structured religion, but that sense of a cherishing presence in the universe, a a mystery, that's very real in the consciousness of of most people. Talk a little bit about the Templeton Foundation and your early connection with Sir John Templeton. Well, Sir John Templeton was a great investor and he truly believed in love as the ultimate reality. In fact, this will make you laugh. But when he passed away, which was in um, the summer of 2008, his son, Dr. John Templeton, uh, called me on my flip phone and said, Dad is dying uh, and he has a favor to ask of you. And I said, oh, what what would that be? I'd love to be uh, as helpful as I can. And he said, well, he has a book that he's not been able to write and he thinks that maybe you could write it for him. <laughs> wow, daunting. So I said, okay, well, does he have a title, Jack? And, 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 and Jack said, yeah, ultimate reality is unlimited love. So I paused for a second and I said, Jack, would you go back to dad, <laughs> to your father, and ask him if we could put a question mark in that title? So he came back about three minutes later and he said, yeah, dad said, is ultimate reality, unlimited love, question mark. And so I wrote that book for the Templeton Foundation. And, you know, that's the final thing that we have to recognize. This is where physics, quantum theory, uh, all the constants and thermodynamics of the universe, where everything comes together in an incredible uh, array of beauty that is all a reflection of this underlying love. And, and, and I don't like to miss that point. It's, on the other hand, you know, it's love heals and, and it's, it's, it's good to be good. And we should, uh, we should be thinking about nature as the gift of all these wonderful spiritual inspirations. But, but yeah, I mean, for Sir John, Sir John was very important to me. And uh, I love the guy. And the work 
continues, you know, through the Unlimited Love Institute and the books that you continue to write. You know, several months ago, you came on the show talking about dignity for deeply forgetful people, how caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. And that's a big title. But what impressed me most about that discussion was the shift in terminology to deeply forgetful people and how the application of love through the caregiving does restore some dignity to the dance of that disease. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's one thing to talk about love. We, I just got back from a conference at Linacre College, Oxford, with a lot of the leading scholars in philosophy and theology and science at Oxford. And they're actually very much taken with the idea of unlimited love, which is a love that goes beyond a uh, human source and, yeah. and, and, and suggests that we, we, we can be um, it almost invaded at times by something that is greater than ourselves. But, uh, but there's also the necessity of having a practical constituency of application. So for me, for the last 30 years, it's been deeply forgetful people. I like that term because it's more inclusive and I love and, that term. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it, we're all on the spectrum of forgetfulness. And so I, true, true, true. I, 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 yeah, I, and we have better, some days are better than others. Uh, but uh, this book with, came out with Johns Hopkins and, um, and it's something that I've been involved with for a long, long time. So I've never wanted to forget that sort of practical human caregiving side of things, even as, uh, the Institute, um, reflected on some very uh, esoteric at times projects around everything from quantum physics to the nature of reality. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Stephen G. Post. To learn more about Unlimited Love Institute, please go to unlimitedloveinstitute.org. You can also find Stephen at Stephen with a PH, stephengpost.com on Twitter at Stephen G. Post. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Stephen G. Post. We're talking about the virtues of love and morality. Let's get back to it. So, Stephen, I would love for you to share these eight pathways, because if we follow this practice, uh, I believe that we will find ourselves in a state of higher love. Well, okay, you know, this this book is a culmination of the 21 years of research that the Institute has done, but it's not an overly sciencey book. It's really uh, a, a book about growth and development. And, and the first path is, is this, may you give and glow. Uh, some years ago, I wrote a book with Jill Nymark uh, called Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Healthier, Happier, Longer <laughs> Life Through the Simple Act of Giving. doesn't always work, but as a general rule, you know, when you, when you give, you discover a deeper self and you can prosper and and flourish. Uh, so may you give and glow. And there's so much good science, some of which we've, we've funded 
on the benefits of, of giving for, for even patients in every imaginable uh, condition, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, AA and alcoholism or whether it's people with chronic pain uh, or mended hearts, uh, uh, it, groups in the hospital that come together and biweekly and they, and they just visit other new patients who are struggling. There's this whole thing of being a wounded healer. So giving and glowing is important. And, and uh, um, the second one is may you heal with kindness. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's something called medical care, but it's very external. It's very routinized. You know, it's a shot in the arm. And, and you know, patients really cry out for a gentle curiosity from their physicians and nurses and everybody, a curiosity about what they're experiencing subjectively in their illness. And we teach that to our medical students um, as profoundly as we're able to, and we do pretty well at it. Um, so may you heal with kindness. Um, may you hmm. find your callings. So many people, you know, they don't realize that every single human being without exception is a miracle of the universe, a wonder of creation. Everybody has a certain set of gifts, a unique combination of talents. And somebody maybe somewhere along the line, Lisa, they told them that they, they weren't worth anything, that they, they, they didn't have any gifts. They were humiliated. They were de-dignified. But I'm a real believer that every person uh, has callings. And when we find those callings, the, the line between work and play, as Khalil Gibran put it so eloquently, completely disappears. You know, yes, I'm fortunate. Yes, I, yes. I, I, I think you're the same way. Yes, I'm go, there. <laughs> I don't go to work. I mean, I, 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 come to, I come to play every day. And, and, I, and I think it's so important to our health and happiness. Like we talk about what we get to do each day, not what we have to do each day. Yeah, yeah. And you're grateful. You're grateful yeah. at the bottom of your heart. for the like. I, I, I could cry in gratitude for being able to teach in medical schools now for 35 years, and I've met so many wonderful people. But more to that, more, more to the point is, you know, I've been able to help so many young people medical students, some, and they go through a lot. I mean, it's not an easy thing, <laughs> spiritually and emotionally. And I've been able to really be a kind of pastor to so many uh, uh, wonderful people who've had great careers. And, you know, I was, I was mentioning to you earlier, I was sitting in this room with a student uh, who was about to leave medical school. This is about seven or eight years ago. She was from uh, Queens, Northern Boulevard, uh, Korean American, and she wasn't really fitting in too well um, uh, with the culture here and she was wanting to leave medicine. And I said, well, wait a minute, give it a, give it a second try. Why don't you come back, email me, come back in a week and, and we'll get together and talk it through. But then I felt this incredible energy behind me and I, there was nothing to see obviously, but I felt a warmth and an energy and it really surprised me. It was almost, it was irresistible and it was like an invasion of something that was beyond me. And so I said, wait a minute, stay here. And I canceled all my appointments for that afternoon. And we just sat and I, and I spoke with her and listened attentively. And ultimately she, she, she left school, but she came back. And my wife and I would visit her every few weeks in Queens and take her out for lunch. And she would write reflective essays on 
how she could how she could make her way as a physician. And it was beautiful. And now she's practicing and she's happily married and living in Connecticut. Wow. So great you know, story. That's, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be able to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that speaks to, you know, the synchronicities that you spoke about in the last segment that, you know, when we pay attention to, like, I call them like life's billboard messages, you know, like you see these things and you can easily drive past or you can just as easily throw an eye and pay attention. Yeah. And those moments can be life altering. Well, that's why I like Larry Dossie so much, you know, uh, one mind premonition these things are very real in the lives of most people. We did a survey of Americans, adult Americans, and published a book about it with Oxford called The Heart of Religion. And we just asked them, have you ever had these experiences of a higher energy of love? 80% of people have, and most of them said, not necessarily directly, but in fact, uh, through other people, that somehow the perfect person at the perfect time with the perfect words in response to a desperate need was just there for me on the journey. And I didn't control it, but I responded. And that's how people <coughs> talk about spirituality a lot. It's just this uncanny um, uh, moment that seems just too perfect to be chance. Yeah. And the fourth one is, may you know inner peace. Yes, let's go. But get back okay. to those, back to those pathways. <laughs> okay, finish those. May you know inner peace. And, and, you know, that's so important. May you cherish the spirit of nature. May you raise kind children. If you have children, if you decide to have children, don't just have children, but think about how to raise kind kids. And there's a lot of literature about that that we've contributed to. Uh, there's a lot of science around it, what sort of parenting techniques are important. How, And, of course, you don't have to be a parent. You can be a, a teacher. You can be a neighbor. You can be part of the community. May you prosper with humility. Uh, so humility is key in my mind because if, if it's humility that keeps you from becoming self-inflated and filling up the room. So there's no no room for anyone else. And, 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 and you can't have love without humility. Um, there's no space for it. And I don't mean humiliation. I just mean, you know, being right sized, if you will. Yeah. You know? And then the final one is may you honor the gift of freedom. I mean, I, you know, you see so many people um, just ruining their lives, um, abusing their, their, their freedom. And if only they could link their freedom to responsibility and to love and to kindness and to service they would be so much happier and so much better off. So those are the basic eight pathways to give and live better. And each one of them makes sense. And each one of them at times I can see a, a, a challenge, you know? They're all challenging. And, yes. and so it, that's why it's it's the positive achievement of goodness. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to write a book that's just about ideas of goodness. I want to write books that really help people move forward in, in, in sustainable fashion uh, in their lives to achieve these loving acts of goodness. And so that's the idea. 
And these pathways, my sense in, in you describing them is they're also practices. Some days we are going to be better at them than others, like with our memories. You know, some days we're going to be more on point with our mind than others. And I don't think it's absolute, right? You, you, you do your best and then you just keep doing your best and you repeat over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, a, a human love can be very unwise. It can overindulge. It can even convey to a child you love that the rest of the world doesn't matter. So you have to be careful about that. Our, our love can be myopic uh, and not extensive. It can flicker and be inconsistent over time. It can be um, unenduring. So our love, our human love has its limits. And that's where spirituality comes in. Um, you know, I, as I say, I was, at, I was at Oxford last week and I love Oxford as like a second home to me. But, you know, the, 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 the poet um, Austin, uh, who was kind of a hippie in the 50s and 60s, uh, wrote a beautiful little vignette where he's sitting on one of the Oxford lawns with his with some friends and no one's drunk anything, no one's sexually interested in the other, but he suddenly feels, and I'm quoting him, invaded by this irresistible presence. And suddenly he knew exactly what it means, because he'd never quite known it before, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And so that metaphor of, of invasion, that's what people talk about. That's the flow state. It's just this sense of it's not coming from me necessarily. I'm not saying no to it, but it's not my energy. It's bigger than us and right. therefore includes us, you know? Right, right. absolutely. And, and this is where I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a very much a, a one mind type uh, thinker. You know, I, I, I'm a bit of a Hindu, I suppose, you know, namaste. I, 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 I think we all have a gift of the mind. I'm, I'm one of the, the philosophers of mind who doesn't believe that mind is derivative from matter, but that maybe, in fact, um, mind has a certain sort of primacy or priority in the universe and everything else comes from it. And so we each uh, have a little bit of this mind, but it's connected with this universal mind. And that's why we can have premonitions. That's why we can have dreams that are meaningful. Um, that's why we could have moments of synchronicity. Somehow there is this mystery um, and, and we're fortunate enough to be a part of it. To learn more about the work of Dr. Stephen G. Post, please visit unlimitedloveinstitute.org or stephengpost.com. You can find Dr. Post on Twitter at Stephen G. Post and that's Stephen with a P-H. As always, I love the time that we get to be together because it brings great joy to my heart. So thank you, Stephen. Well, it's such a pleasure for me, Lisa. Really, it's a joy. <laughs> you, have, you have such a talent. You know, you're, you're, I mean, I, I've, I've encountered an awful lot of hostesses and hosts on radio and podcasts, but and you have a kind of gentle quality about you and a sincerity that is really a beautiful thing. Oh, thanks. Here comes a quick break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. 
Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We're back continuing the conversation about the virtues of love and morality. My next guest is Professor Phil Zuckerman, who is a professor of sociology and secular studies at Pitzer College. He's the author of many books on secularism. He is an editor at Only Sky and the executive director of Humanist Global Charity. He's also the author of a brand new book that I am pretty excited to share with you, What It Means to Be Moral, Why Religion is Not Necessary for Living an Ethical Life. And Phil is in the house. Hi, Phil. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for writing this piece of work because Mm -hmm. it really calls to me, and I'm really eager to share this with our listeners, because you really talk about how non-religious people, and by that we mean atheists, agnostics, and humanists, tend to be more moral than their religious counterparts. Absolutely. And that's something I wish (laughs) people understood, you know, because there's such a deep, deep connection in most people's minds that religion kind of, I mean, that morality comes from a religion, but it's just not so. And the reality today is if you look at the major questions of morality in terms of human suffering, compassion, fairness, justice, equality, the more secular folks tend to land on the more moral side and the more religious folks tend to land on the more immoral side. And what do you think that is? Is it about our internal compasses versus seeking external references for how we organize ourselves with in terms of virtuous behavior? I think that's part of it. I think that religious morality is is ultimately based on obedience. You're obeying authority, either the authority of your church or a, a cosmic, magical, invisible, divine authority, some sky god who tells you what to do. And that's that that you know, that's a very precarious. That's not morality, right? If you just obey orders, you're you're actually you're actually giving up the hard work and the human work of having a conscience, uh, reflecting on your actions, observing consequences, and observing the suffering of others uh, in relation to those actions or con- you know and in, in consequences. And I think secular people, because they don't believe there's a magic, invisible you know taskmaster who's watching you know checking a list and checking it twice, you know finding out who's naughty and nice. Uh, we have a more, I think, a more mature uh, and a more centered and a more um, realistic approach to morality, which is based on many things, and I can get into where what it's based on. But at the end of the day, it's about empathy, compassion, um, a horror at the suffering of others, and a desire to see a world that is is minimal when it comes to suffering. And so, yeah, whether it's on the leading questions of the day, whether it's care for the climate uh, being destroyed and the suffering that that will cause, whether it's care for a woman's bodily autonomy and the suffering that will be caused when that's taken away, whether it's uh, alarm over AR-15s and all the suffering they cause, whether it's uh, allowing people to marry whoever they want regardless of their sex or gender. I mean all these things at the end of the day are about um, living a good life, living a decent life a caring life and 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 avoiding or limiting suffering. And so I do agree with you that when you have a more internal a morality based on an internal compass, uh, that's really going to, I think, at the end of the day, be more attentive to that than just an o- blind obedience. 
You raise an interesting point in making your comment that I think about the, the notion of loving thy neighbor as loving thyself, which is a pretty moral perspective. And yet uh, what religion, I, in my, my estimation, often does is it bifurcates us from our neighbor. If our neighbor looks like us, it's okay. But if our neighbor doesn't look like us, worship like us, operate like us, then they're the enemy or they're not our neighbor. And therefore we should not treat them the same. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, interestingly enough, there's, um, pounds and pounds and pounds of research on this. And it's, I think it surprises people when you actually look at the evidence and the data, even though the world's religions talk about, we're all brothers and sisters, you know, we all have the same daddy God and we're all, you know, one. The reality is on, 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 in sociological studies, social psychological studies, psychological studies, anthropological, you name it, um, on all measures of ethnocentrism, racism, um, xenophobia, the more religious you are, the higher you tend to rate on those areas. And the less religious you are, the lower. Now, it's, it's again, it's just a spectrum. It's a correlation. It's not an absolute. Yeah. It's not, you know, all religious people are this way and all secular people are this way. But when we look at just off the top of my head, who is most supportive of providing refuge for refugees who are fleeing war-torn areas? The more secular among us are the most open and welcoming to refugees, the most religious, the, the Bible studiers, the the multiple times a week church attenders are the least supportive. And this is ironic or, or paradoxical because, you know, G, you know, the whole story of Christianity is, right. is welcoming the stranger. There's no room at the inn, you know, for poor little baby Jesus. And yet we see this time and time again on, in most conflicts around the world, the more religious tend to be the more nationalistic, the more militaristic, and the more secular tend to be the more cosmopolitan, the more universalistic. So again, it's not absolute, but yeah, there, there's no question that Religion is really, really good at binding communities. Perhaps it's the best thing out there for binding generations to each other, descendants and ancestors, multiple generations, and, and solidifying community and social capital. But the dark side to that is it also increases outgroup hostility. It increases mistrust of others, dislike of others. So yeah, that's your your you nailed it. So it's not just an anecdotal observation. We have a lot of evidence that illustrates that. And we can look at contemporary history being made, you know, right before us that illustrates this point, both in the United States and abroad and in, in, in many countries of the world. Oh, absolutely. If you if you look at right now who's most supportive of, you know, a kind of fascistic U.S. where we close the borders to anybody that's not white. The Jesus lovers are the most supportive of that, and yes. the atheists are the least. If you look at India, you have a Hindu nationalist leader, Modi, who's persecuting um, the Muslim minority and is most supported by the strongest Hindus, whereas the more secular, atheistic Hindus are the least. Um, if you look at Israel-Palestine, on both sides, the more religious Jews and the more religious Muslims are the most antagonistic, uh, mo most warmongering, most wanting to you know, 
you know, exterminate the other. And the more secular Israelis and the more secular Palestinians are the more most open to mutual cooperation, mutual existence, um, and so on and so forth. So whether it's Israel, India, Hungary, look at look at Bolsonaro in Brazil. Yeah. So again, it, it's not to say that religion can't be a force for good in the world. It often is. And it's not to say that secularism is always a force for good. It often isn't. You know, you look at the former Soviet Union, uh, you look at, at Pol Pot, you look at North Korea. I mean, Secular, nationalistic, communistic regimes, atheist regimes can be heinous. Um, but when you look in the democratic free world, you still see consistently that the more religious folks are the more tribalistic, the more ethnocentric, the more divisive, and the more us versus them, and the secular folks um, are the more universalistic, more cosmopolitan, more open to the sort of true brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. And how does fear play a role in this? You know, that when we look at... Yeah. The more religious groups, there is there's fear mongering going on that somehow if the other person has the same liberties or opportunities as the other has, that's that power will be lost. I mean, this is only my own view. I haven't, you know, performed research on this, but it's it's an yeah. observation. No, I think fear is often at the root of a lot of these uh, uh, pernicious forces in society. And W.E.B. Du Bois said the same thing. Uh, he wrote great stuff on white racism, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And he often said that there's fear, status fear, fear of not having a job, economic insecurity. These things fuel racism, nationalism. There's just no question about it. And religious fundamentalism. Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of why we see actually the strongest predictor of how religious a society will be is how precarious life is in that society. In societies yeah. that have a democracy, universal health care, uh, adequate housing, excellent education, child care, elder care, good uh, health care, religion plummets, right? But in societies where life is very precarious, where there's no democracy, where there's a lot of corruption, a lot of crime, a lot of inequality, you don't know if you're going to have a roof over your head, you don't know where your next meal is going to come, you don't know if you're going to get to see the doctor, religiosity is much, much stronger there as are these other manifestations of human fear, tribalism, nationalism, et cetera. So no, you're right. Spot on, I think. Let's talk a little bit about ways that the average person, you know, we're not talking any big exercise here, but the average person might cultivate greater morality within themselves and model that for their families and other people that they might impact. Oh man, an actual tangible question that's not abstract or theoretical you got or academic yes indeed i think there's a couple a couple things there so number one you know basic golden rule morality just treating people the way you would like to be treated and that's not in a in a in a literal sense like it's not that if i want to have you know a blood transfusion that you have to have a blood transfusion but rather in a more general sense that if i would like to make choices over my own health care i would grant you the right to make choices choices over your own health care so i think if we treat people the way we would want to be treated that means our children our spouses our relatives our friends I, to me that that's the absolute core and it's a universal principle that you know that treating people the way you would want to be treated it's not only articulated in the christian scriptures and the jewish scriptures and the most, but in in ancient Egyptian papyrus and and Buddhist teachings and Confucius teachings, so it's it's a very universalistic altruistic uh, orientation. I think honesty is key. I think yeah. lies are always corrosive, um, unless you know, unless your friend shows them shows you the artwork that their fourth grader made. Of course, you say it's fantastic, <laughs> but otherwise, I think um, I think living honestly, 
living with integrity. And then the next thing, the last thing I would say is if you're, you are concerned about some issue of moral consequence, whether it's too many guns in our society, or you're worried about climate crisis, or you're worried about women's reproductive rights, or you're worried about racist, racial inequality or whatever, you find one group or one website and you just do what you can. If it's five bucks a week, I mean a month or writing a letter once a month or, you know, and you just, you just make that a habit. So it just becomes kind of, you don't think about it, but I think those little steps, you know, to be honest, I'm going to draw from my Jewish upbringing here. One of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite sayings is, is mitzvah, gerer, mitzvah, which means, you know, the song from summer camp, like good deeds always lead to more good deeds. So I actually do think there's some wisdom there that when you start living honestly and treating people the way you want to be treated. And then you pick a certain cause that you care about and you just do a little bit. I think it tends to snowball. Um, That would be my advice. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Phil Zuckerman. He is the author of What It Means to Be Moral, Why Religion is Not Necessary for Living an Ethical Life. To learn more, please see Phil over on Twitter at Phil underscore Zuckerman. Let's grab a quick pause and we'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious. And happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We're back continuing the conversation with Professor Phil Zuckerman. We're talking about the virtues of love and morality. Let's get back to the conversation. So, Phil, I want to talk about generosity because for me, that when I look at in ways that I can be generous with my time, with my energy, with my effort, that feels like an aspiration to a moral life. You know, when I see the other as valuable and not disconnected from me. Well said. Absolutely. I think on that real interpersonal level, you know, I tend to talk about things at the societal level. That's my training. But I think at that individual level, uh, seeing, uh, you know, we we are connected. And to see that connection, I think, motivates that generosity of spirit and heart, or it's the other way around. <laughs> the yes. generosity and spirit of heart causes us to feel that connection. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, you know, I think we have bioevolutionary um, conditioning to to have a sort of almost instinctual care for those that we're closely related to, Ch- certainly yes. mothers with their offspring and children and our parents and, and siblings. But I think cultivating that for people that, you know, beyond that immediate circle is perhaps at the root of all 
um, moral aspirations. Um, Peter Singer calls it the expanding circle so that we don't just care about our immediate family or our immediate tribe or our immediate you know, group or clan, but that we are able to see the, the, our connections to people beyond that as well. Which you know, brings me to a form of love that Jesus Christ represents to people, you know, this form of agape love where that you can love another person without necessarily even being that connected to them, right? Just the fact that they exist makes Mm. them worthy and lovable of being treated well. I certainly would hope so. I see that also as part of our common primate speciesdom. Um, You know, it's, you know, it's funny how the religions all talk about, well, we're all brothers and sisters with, you know, we have this father God or whatnot. And then science, the data actually teaches us that we actually are, in fact, all brothers and sisters and cousins through common ancestry. <laughs> yes, indeed. That is, that is observable. <laughs> fact. <DNA>. Exactly. <laughs> fact. And, science. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's a much more profound um, um, approach because it, it it explains why we are why we we don't like to see suffering in others. We we have something called empathy. We have something called theory of mind. We know what it feels like to be lied to. We know what it feels like to be harmed, to experience loss. And I do think that uh, when cultivated, propels us to be better people. You know, and when we talk about empathy and compassion, you know, as being part of morality, where does critical thinking come in? Man, that's an interesting question. I can think of a couple ways. So um, number one, I'm just going to go with something like COVID. Um, If we really care about each other and we have actual family values and we don't want to see people experience suffering and loss, we will – understand that science can can often be the best source of information. Empirical uh, double-blind <laughs> testing yes. is the best way to understand what works and what doesn't. And so in the case of COVID, the more you understand, the, 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 the critical thinkers among us were the most likely to adhere to the um, um, mandates that were suggested by medical professionals. They were the most likely to social distance, wear masks, get vaccinated because they understood how the process works. If you lacked critical thinking, it was much more easy to be duped by conspiracy theories, to think it was all just a bunch of nonsense. Now, the, And then the consequences are very real, and they're yeah. real in terms of suffering. People lost, you know, spouses lost spouses and children lost parents. So, and then on the other side, I think also, you know, not to quote Aristotle, but he did in, – in his work on ethics, he did argue a, a very profound insight, which was like, you know, to, to live a truly moral life is virtually impossible if you're living in a corrupt society. You, you have to Oof. have certain people have – yeah, people Oof. have to have basic – you know, basic rights have to be in place, all right, to – you know, free speech and education and healthcare and housing, like – if. If people are, you know, struggling day to day and there's incredible inequality and no health care, no education, no housing, you know, try to live a moral life in those circumstances is extremely difficult, if not impossible. So Aristotle said, look, we have to have a just society first, and then that allows humans to live justly as individuals. And so I think a critical thinking 
approach helps us understand what causes poverty. It, it is solvable. Society is Of course it is. <laughs> poverty. What causes gun violence? It's not a mystery. What causes, you know, these social pathologies? And so if you lack critical thinking, again, you're more susceptible to conspiracy theories. You're more susceptible to magical thinking. You're more susceptible to religious fanaticism. That's not going to help. We need to be uh, deliberate, empirical, rational, and critical in our understandings of how to, how to solve society's problems, which I think at the end of the day, allow for more moral flourishing at the individual level. I agree. And I want to ask you about creating that just society. I mean, that seems to be something that we are challenged with today. Yeah, it's true. We know it's possible because we can look at societies that were once tremendously uh, you know, ravaged by inequality, oppression, exploitation, death, and dis- disease that are now models of democracy and equality. We can look at Japan. We can look at Scandinavia. We can look at the Netherlands. We can look at uh, Ireland. I don't know if you ever read Angela's Ashes, but you know, uh, here's a tale of just bleak poverty in Ireland not so long ago. And yet, when they in slum, when they wanted to make a movie version of the book, they wanted to film it in Ireland, and there were no slums. That <laughs> fit the description. So they had to build fake slums because Ireland, you know, in less than a hundred years was able to turn itself into a, a much more humane, moral and decent and, uh, society. So it's definitely possible. Um, what hinders it in the United States may be beyond my pay grade. I mean, we just have so many different, uh, uh, problems here that I think contribute to, you know, we, we do improve in many ways, right? We, we do have a minimum wage, even though it's pretty far behind and, you know, the U.S. is, I don't know, number 17 on the last time I checked the United Nations Human Development Index. So we're not, Ouch. you know, we're not terrible. Not terrible, just, but, we, but we could be better. Absolutely. With the wealth that we have, <clears throat> we could immediately alleviate all student loans. We could, ha- we should and need to have universal health care like every other industrialized democracy has on planet Earth. We could e- immediately uh, a- a tackle environmental challenges that would create jobs. So, so, so why this is the case, uh, that's a, a deeper conversation. I think it has to do with just some unique fact characteristics about the United States. Well, maybe it has to do with the desire to control, you know, women's body parts, who we marry, yeah. denying that the climate crises exist, all ways of suppressing you yeah. know, people and their self-determination because, yeah. because there's a faction of the government that is sort of old and outmoded in the fear of change. Well, that's, again, that's where my secularist hat comes in. Like all the folks in this country that want to deny women you know, bodily autonomy, tell people who they can and can't marry. They want to destroy public education. They want to, you know, it's all religious fundamentalists and religious fanatics. I mean, you know, I I shouldn't say all, I think there's always a few secular, um, um, you know, fascists like that, Stephen Miller and, and, and Trump, I think Trump's a fascist atheist, but, but mo, but again, when you look at the data, it is those, the denial of climate crisis, the denial of, of, of our gun uh, crisis, all these things, the denial of racism in our society, the n- denial of yes. all coming from uh, Christian nationalists, conservative Christians, strong Orthodox Jews, strong religious Mormons. Like it is a religious phenomenon. So then the question is, why is that the case? And what you find is that that religious fanaticism tends to breed most successfully in areas where there's a lot of poverty and a lot of inequality and, and life is a lot harder. Yeah. Well, it certainly gets me fired up, I'll tell you, because 
And maybe the way that we do something, you know, is at the very individual level, right? At the grassroots level, you go from, you know, the bottom up as well as the top down, right? You try and affect change in government. You try and affect change within our own households and our communities. And eventually this evolution of that, you know, true moral presence. And I'm not talking about like somebody policing our morality, but sort of where we're, our moral compass is, is, is from the inside out can occur. Absolutely. It's the only way it's going to happen. You nailed it. Yeah. It's the only way we can survive, actually, I think, as a species. Yeah, I agree. Come back anytime and hang out with me because I love talking about this stuff and I love challenging people to, to think, you know, to think for themselves and rationalize what kind of model they want to be for their children, what kind of legacy they want to leave behind for the world. Do you want your world to be a better place for you having been in it, you know, or do you want to leach off of it? Absolutely. Amen. Amen. (laughs) I'll amen that one. (laughs) Yeah. I'll, you know, and before we go, I just want to touch upon, you know, uh, the humanist movement, because it it, it is uh, important for people to be aware that there is another way of um, operating in the world without, you know, some magical thinking or omnipresent God figure where you can have a form of spiritual practice without it being named spiritual. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Most non-religious people are just kind of living their lives without, you know, they just, they've moved on from religion and they're just focused on their, their families or their careers or their hobbies or whatnot. But some of us uh, want to have a more focused approach to living, uh, a more altruistic, you know, m- more you know, opportunities for altruism, for community, for connection. And so there's humanist groups all over the country. You can find them on a, with a click on, on Google. There, there's everything from, you know, humanist meetups, humanist hiking clubs to actual humanist charitable organizations, and even humanist communities that uh, that congregate. Uh, the one I'm most familiar with is in Minnesota, actually, because my daughter went to college at McAllister. So whenever I went to visit her, there was this amazing humanist community there in Minneapolis uh, that just had everything you could want, you know, from childcare to song to speakers to a, an actual building. So yes, there are um, religious-like Groups, movements, and communities that are humanistic in nature, that have a naturalistic view of the world and don't rely on anything supernatural to solve today's problems. And you can also check out the Humanist Global Charity, where you are the executive director, to look at some of the work that is going on in the world through a humanistic lens. To connect with Phil, you can also do so on Twitter at Phil underscore Zuckerman. We've been speaking with Professor Phil Zuckerman about his book, What It Means to Be Moral, why religion is not necessary for living an ethical life. And I'm serious, Phil, come back and hang out with me anytime. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lisa. My pleasure. We'd love to. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. Stephen G. Post and Professor Phil Zuckerman, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. 
To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>